Welcome back to Institutionalized, a podcast on American institutions and why they've gone crazy. I'm Charles Van Lehman, fellow the Manhattan Institute, contributing editor, City Journal. I'm Aaron Severian, a reporter at the Washington Free Beacon. And Aaron, how are you doing today? We are recording this episode on November 8th, the day of the midterms. By the time it comes out, we will know whether democracy has died or not. It's it's, it's dying today. Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, the the early indicators are that democracy is going to die and that we are about to live under authoritarian state for goodness knows how long. But which is going to ban the production of this podcast. So so you won't actually hear this episode, listeners. No, actually, I I suspect that the authoritarian state will enlist us as propagandists. Are you saying propagandists? Okay, I'm fine with that. I mean, I mean, I mean, I think that we are more likely to be regime propagandists under conditions of Republican rule than Democrat rule. Uh, Two slides, a podcast about American institutions and why they're the greatest. Yeah, exactly. Well, but so because of this, you know, I'm going to be up kind of late tonight with my colleagues watching the results come in, et cetera, et cetera. I don't actually have to do that much, but I want to kind of be there in solidarity. And if anything does need to get written, I'll, I'll be up to write it. And because of that, I am when, caffeinating. When I, when, I, uh, when, I, when I had Aaron's job, I was there for election night 2020, which meant that it fell to me to write uh, Latinx voters deliver Florida to Trump. One of my favorite free vegan headlines I got to write. That's, that's, that's pretty great. But so I... I'm caffeinating so that I am prepared to, you know, write, write such triggering headlines because I will need a lot of energy tonight. Speaking speaking of which, Charles, why don't you tell our listeners what we are going to be talking about today? (laughs) So we're talking very broadly about energy, the, the, the industries that produce it, its use, and I think most particularly its relevance to politics and institutions more generally. Obviously, the dynamics of energy production are one of the most important and also least observed inputs to our politics. Just as two examples, there's one argument that the there's an argument that the the energy shortages in Europe helped to topple Liz Truss's government in the UK. I think there's a there's a pretty plausible argument that the midterm results will be partially driven, if not exclusively driven, by the price of oil at the pump. Energy is sort of one of the ways in which a variety of market forces most clearly communicated to the electorate. But that means that, you know, the, the systems that regulate, govern, compete over, produce, consume, et cetera, energy are very important to those political perceptions. Energy is also interesting because it entails sort of balancing pocketbook concerns against bigger picture ideological or existential ones, which is say climate change. But so we want to we want to talk a little bit about the both those big picture questions and also the plumbing. How does our system for producing and continuing to produce energy work? How should we understand the incentives behind it? Aaron, what are you what are you interested in getting at in our conversation today? I am largely interested in the environmental movement and why it has kind of well, I'm interested in a lot of things, but one thing I'm interested in is kind of this interesting history that I don't think many people know, but that our guests can probably talk about related to the environmental movement's kind of opposition to the centralized power grid. In the 70s, there was actually a lot of talk among environmentalists about how kind of putting lots of things on the electric grid was bad because it would create sort of a a 
not just it would create risks in case the grid goes down, but also it would allow for this kind of technocratic authoritarian top-down management of the energy supply by shadowy, vague, unelected bureaucrats. Now with the with debates about nuclear power and other things, you know, that's that concern about centralization has kind of fallen by the wayside in certain ways. But in others, you know, I think you see it persist in the kind of residual environmentalist opposition to nuclear power and to the way in which environmentalists tend to be skeptical, I think, of concentrated corporate power, including in some cases, concentrated corporate power that might actually help solve some of our environmental problems. That's what I'm interested in. I don't really know that much else about this topic, I have to be honest. What are you interested in, Charles? Yeah, I mean, you know, I I, I think as I alluded to in the introduction, I'm, I'm interested in that sort of intersection between energy and politics. Energy is sort of something that sort of can be perceived as politically neutral or as 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 an as 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 a commodity that shouldn't have so much an impact on our political life as it does, and so it's sort of it's sort of obscured in that way. So I'm I'm interested in a who the, as as I alluded to earlier, who are the different agents who have stakes interest in the production of energy or the reduction the production of energy, as you alluded to, and b you know how do we how do we think about how that sort of local level struggle plays out at the macro level, how it, you know, what are its downstream ramifications, as it were. All very light stuff, as usual. Let's get to our guest. Our guest is Josiah Neely. He's a senior fellow in energy policy at the R Street Institute. His work focuses on advancing a well-defined and limited role for government in shaping decisions about infrastructure, wholesale and retail electricity, research and development, fuel choice and diversity, and climate adaptation and mitigation. Josiah, welcome to Institutionalized. Thank you for having me. I'm a big fan of the show. So, so well, yeah, go ahead. Aaron. So, so Josiah, we, we, we like to start with an opening provocative question. And on both Charles and my mind is the following question. Global warming, when's it going to kill all of us? <laughs> well, yeah, global warming. I mean, it already killed Jeffrey Epstein, right? So, uh, ah, so yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the, I mean, I guess the I guess the the answer is, you know, Probably not for a while, maybe maybe never, right? Probably never. I think we'll all probably die of other causes, most of us anyway. Global warming is kind of like a weird issue in that people tease people I would I would describe it as a you know it's a moderate long-term problem, right? So it's not nothing. People, I guess in politics have a problem treating things as kind of a moderate long-term problem. So it's either nothing or we're all going to die, I guess, in eight years now, the clock is 2030. So that that's, I guess, the the nature of politics as people want to get hysterical about things and perhaps destroy great works of art. You know, I guess that's the latest thing is oh, right. tomato soup on Van Gogh or whatever. But I, I, I expect that I will die of, of something else, you know. Uh, probably right. Yeah, yeah. Whatever right. the next uh, virus is, or yeah, or 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 nuclear war. Yeah. Nuclear war. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. Uh, uh, you, he, uh, Josiah hasn't yet heard the episode in which we talk about how we're all going to die in nuclear war. That's that's, that's coming for his episode. Yeah. So let's 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 take a step back and talk about some of the nitty gritty. With my sort of limited understanding, energy, the 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 production consumption of energy in the United States seems like a weird market question mark in some places there's a monopoly in some places not it's usually very regulated 
so to what extent is there a free market in energy in the United States and how does that vary by jurisdiction? How do you know I I pay I pay a utility company every month to like provide energy to my home. How does that market work at scale? Okay, so I think it's a good idea when talking about energy to divide things up between oil and everything else. And the reason for that is so we use oil to power our cars. Almost all of our cars are powered by gasoline. You know, there's a few electric vehicles, a few, like there's some natural gas, you know, vehicles, but almost all of it is, is cars. And the flip side of that is the other, you know, major source of energy that we use is through electricity. And we use almost no oil to produce electricity in the United States today, except for like maybe Puerto Rico used a little bit. So those are, and, and those two markets are treated very differently. Oil is a, is like the prices of oil are set in a global market. It's base, it's basically a free market system in terms of both production and consumption of oil and gasoline. You do have thing, you know, like there's gas taxes that vary from state to state. So gasoline is a couple bucks more expensive in California than it is in Texas, right? For various reasons, partly because of government policy. There are some restrictions on where you can drill. And of course, there's some drilling on federal land or whatever. But the basic, the ba basic, you know, overall framework there is it's a market and it's a global market. And when it comes to electricity, that is a kind of different. Each state has its own different system for regulating electricity. Most states operate under what is called a vertically integrated model. It's a monopoly model. When you want to you know, sign up for electric service, you only have one choice. That's your utility. And that utility is going to own everything from you know, the distribution center to the transmission lines to the power plants, right? There are a handful, there's about a dozen states, including where I am in Texas, that do have retail choice competition. So it, it's, it's kind of like a spectrum of how far they go, but you might, depending on where you are in the state or in the states, which state you're in, you might be able to choose who your electric provider is. And then I think even more significant, there's some states where the generation market is competitive. So instead of having like a single utility that's deciding, you know, what plants to build and then it's buying its own power or whatever, people, you know, buy their own power plants. So that's, yeah, so that's a, it's kind of a mix. Electricity is kind of like a mix of market, non-market systems, depending on where you are. But those two markets, both important, but they're, Kind of very different, very different beasts. If that answers your question. So the the it, no, it, it it does. The related question though, and I think this holds for both. This is a question about both the markets and energy, as it were. Is who do you think about as the the sort of primary stakeholders, the primary primary people with political interest in both energy markets? So you know, one one answer is big oil. Another answer is local government regulators. When we when we're trying to understand how energy is produced, who's competing with whom? Uh, to shift the balance of the governance of the market. Yeah, yeah. So the in a system where you're in a vertically integrated system, obviously the biggest stakeholder is going to be the utilities because they have 
you know, as as I think your listeners may know from prior discussions or just from background in economics, you know, there's an area of economics called public choice economics, which talks about, you know, basically trying to apply economic principles to government. And one of the key insights of public choice economics is that if you have a situation where there are concentrated benefits and diffuse costs, so there's a there's a few people who gain a lot of money from a certain policy and the cost of the policy are distributed, you know, maybe a couple bucks through every single customer, then the people who are the few people who are making a lot of money, they have a huge big incentive to try and maintain that. Whereas the people who are bearing the costs, you know, even if the total costs vastly outweigh the benefits, uh, it's only a couple bucks. So it's not really, you know, the individuals don't have an incentive to to do that. So that's, I think, a phenomenon that you see over and over in government. It's it's something that you definitely see in the utility sector with the utilities. Other stakeholders, of course, you know, environmental groups, uh, environmental activists, particularly, this is true for the electricity sector, but also for, you know, oil. It's a big, you know, it's a big, important stakeholder, stakeholder group as well. And then, of course, there's like with oil, there's all sorts of foreign policy considerations that also come into play. Obviously, a you know a significant factor in the increase in gas prices over the last year has been the war in Ukraine and the sanctions and other responses to that. There's all sorts of stakeholders there. You don't typically, you wouldn't necessarily typically think of them as energy stakeholders necessarily, but they it does have a huge impact, right? So, so, you know, that's, I guess, a, a tricky part of it. So as Americans cope with these higher energy costs, so does Europe, one thing that you might hear from progressives, in particular people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez as well, we wouldn't have these problems if, if we just, all of it was green energy and we weren't relying on, you know, Russia and these other countries for oil. So what is the viability of that kind of green energy transition? Is this something we can count on or are there sort of hard physical or economic constraints that make it very hard to transition more than a kind of very limited percentage of ener our energy to green sources? Yeah. So, and of course the, the AOC position her green new deal or whatever I guess I guess it was getting off fossil fuels was not enough of a challenge because she's also wants to shut down all the nuclear plants even though they don't produce greenhouse gas emissions and I think it also doesn't like large scale hydro either you know so you could so if if your if your only concern is no fossil fuels then we do with existing technology you you could you could do that at least for the non for all for the electricity sector that would be that would be a, a simple technical matter because you do have nuclear power you do have hydropower and then they have you know we have gotten decently good the, the grid has gotten decently good at incorporating and integrating a, a fairly large amount of wind and solar resources so if you had some sort of combination between that Technically, I don't think that's a problem. Certainly, economically, that could be that that might be a problem in the in the in the short term. 
but it it could it could be done. Practically speaking, though, I think politically speaking, that it definitely does not seem like that's such an easy task. I think it's telling that in the last year in Europe, as they had, you know, in like a partial they, they they've had a kind of partial Green New Deal in that, you know, the the gas has been kind of cut off and restricted. And of course, A, that's caused a lot of hardship, particularly as you go into the winter, people are not able to keep their homes or whatever. But then it's also the case that the emissions from Europe have gone up, right? So it's not even the case that you could say, well, you know, there's all people are kind of suffering the short term, but there's going to be environmental benefits in the long term. No, actually, it turns out that if you suddenly try, you know, suddenly try and cut off one of your major sources of, of energy, from fossil fuels, that that's not necessarily even going to reduce your emissions overall. So I think that there's probably, I mean, there's a lot of stuff in the AOC worldview that I think is kind of misguided and the energy stuff is no, is no exception to that. Just a quick thing. I mean, so if, if emissions actually went up, despite them being cut off from all this gas, that seems to suggest something about the quixotic nature of the degrowth the so-called degrowth movement, right? The idea that you can get people to just voluntarily accept a lower energy society once they become habituated to whatever the energy baseline is. This just, this seems dead on arrival. I yeah. That's I, kind of an implication of what you're saying. That, that's correct. I mean, maybe once once democracy dies, you know, I don't know, maybe more opportunities for degrowth opens up for a all. We all die in nuclear war, you know, that's a, maybe a, a viable path for degrowth. This is, the, this is this is the case for the 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 the, the climate case for voting for Republicans. Right. They'll, exactly. they'll destroy democracy, which is a necessary <laughs> condition for the construction of a climate dictatorship. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I, coming soon, coming soon for Politico, I, I'm sure, but or Vox. But yeah, I'm certainly in a Democrat. I mean. There is, I think, it is, I think, well-established in the political science literature and also in just common sense that any climate policy that requires people to accept permanent long-term degradations of their living standards is not going to be, it's not going to be viable. So if you do have a segment within the environmental movement for whom that is appealing, degrowth, other things like that. And I think the last year, as if there weren't already enough evidence already, I think the last year has again demonstrated that that is not a viable strategy. You know, you need, you know, you know, if you're going to do this, what you really need to do is you need to make green, clean sources cheaper and more appealing than fossil fuels. So people will want to use them instead and will be able to use them and not have to like, freeze to death or, you know, overheat or not be able to get around because, because, you know, they don't have cars or transportation or anything like that. So let me ask, just as long as we're on the topic, I'm, I'm sort of interested in thinking about the, the environmental movement, as you put it, which is, which is sort of, you know, from, from, from the show's perspective, a little bit of an oddity, right? It's like, you know, there's, there's a, a significant and sometimes even influential contingent of activists whose shtick is, we need to reduce human impact on the earth. We need to prioritize the earth as an independent good. And, you know, we need to be willing to absorb lots of pain and often do really outlandish things in order to accomplish that goal. And something that seems like 
kind of irrational, right? So, so, so in 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 the sense of like they are committed to the vision of everyone needs to suffer a little bit more for the good of the earth. So why a you know this is sort of asking you to speculate on incentives, but why do you think there that movement commands? Yeah, what why 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 do you think that movement commands political influence either among you know rank and file activists or I think more relevantly among politicians of a certain stripe? Yeah, so partially, I, I there is I think there's a good book that I think describes a lot of the underlying psychology of the environmental movement and of people not just with regard to environmental issues, other issues too. Risk and Culture by Mary Douglas and Aaron Wolowski. And it you know, kind of goes into like, what is the psychology behind this? It's very deep-rooted in some people. Particularly, I think this is a segment, this is a small, this is always it, like the committed environmentalists, I think have always been kind of like a small percentage of the population, but they have, become uh, very influential, particularly in the modern Democratic Party in the same way for, for in the same way and for the same reasons I think that some of these other activist groups have become very influential in the modern Democratic Party. It's something that's very appealing to like a certain class of like educated, you know, upper upper middle income backgrounds, liberal people. Who kind of like run all the all the organizations right at the at the junior level? You know they're very they're like I will give them I will give them this like one of the reasons why I think that they're influential is because they're like just very very committed and you know they have a lot of energy they never stop they they are willing to be like unpopular or uncompromising in order to achieve their ends right that you know they're willing to be like obnoxious right like the people. Who I, I think oftentimes that can be counterproductive, right? You look at some of the Extinction Rebellion or other things where people are, you know, putting tomato sauce on like works of art, or they're trying to like shut down highways or other other stuff like that, right? Okay, like I think the average person looks at that. It does not make him more sympathetic to environmental positions. I think that's probably fair to say, but. There is also, I think, a fair amount of people who are just like, well, what what do we have to do or give someone in order to like make them go away or shut up, right? That that's I think an under underrated aspect of of politics. And of course, you know, it's also when you get people like that that are in the institutions, they can have a an outsized impact just because they're so they're so relentless. The uh, so 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 let me go in sort of the other direction. I want to talk about. What I think is it's sort of hard to track the politics of it, right? The 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 sort of energy alternative that a handful of people are very excited about and yet never seems to materialize, which is nuclear power. And that's obviously mm-hmm. both an issue in the US and in Europe. I'm sort of of two minds about it. But so how do you think about, you know, there's the 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 bullish case for nuclear is it's cheap and it's really easy and it generates a lot and would solve most of our problems and it's low emissions. So so do you do you buy the bullish case and then more generally you know what are the what are the what are the blocks along the way why hasn't that sort of dream been realized as it were yeah so i definitely nuclear power has a lot of positives it is it's reliable right power it is zero emissions power you can you can make it at 
at scale, you know, it's 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 like a proven concept that you can basically run your electric system almost exclusively on nuclear power. There are countries that do that. Cheap, I don't think I don't think that's kind of been borne out. Nuclear actually nuclear is a a very strange technology. Most of the time tech new technologies have a evolution where they start off they're really expensive. And then over time, as they get bigger and better, they get cheaper. Nuclear power is, has actually gotten more expensive to produce over over the years. Some of that, I think, is, I mean, a significant portion of that, I think, just has to do with, with the, the regulatory structure. You know, nuclear power in the United States is regulated by a federal entity, the NRC. And I think I believe it's still technically true. I think that's in the entire lifetime of the NRC, there has never been a, a new nuclear plant that has come online commercially, right? There are some that are in the pipeline that they will probably come. There are some that started and then Wait, they- what? Up. Yes, yes. Well, why? Why? Well, I mean, I I think it's a, in order to get- it, How long has the NRC been around? Since the, it's about 40 years, basically. And we haven't uh, built a new nuclear plant in 40 years. That's come online? No. So they, after, there there have been a couple that have almost made it, <laughs> but they got canceled because of cost overruns. There are some that are in the process that will probably come online maybe in the next couple of years. But so, yeah, why, why no nuclear plants? Okay, it's it's just that these plants, particularly the old school plants, both because they are very, very big, right? So they're very capital intensive. And then because of the risk profile and, and regulation and other things, getting a new nuclear plant online is, I mean, it can be like a decade plus long process, right? All of the plants are basically designed from scratch. So there's no, you don't get a lot of advantages or savings from that in terms of time or whatever. So it's just, it's very expensive. And then because they cost so much in order to pay out, you, you know, they, in order to make your money, you basically have to be profitable for 40, 50 years. It's hard to predict in advance what is going to be happening in the electricity market in 40 to 50 years. So there were a lot of plants that were doing okay when natural gas was really expensive. And then we had fracking and the price of natural gas went down, which is great for consumers because electricity is cheaper, but it was harder for the nuclear plants to, to make money. So most of the, there are, if you talk to people, there are all sorts of like new designs and people have all sorts of like, you know, with the next gen, the fourth generation or the next generation of nuclear plants are going to be able to get around these issues, I think that there, there's definitely some potential for like smaller reactors, say, right, that might not be as expensive. You would have to, in order to do that, you need to like fundamentally change the way we regulate nuclear power. But that's, so that's, that's kind of the, that's kind of the big roadblock is it, it is under the current system, it's very expensive and it's very time consuming. And the regulators clearly they do not care. I, I don't think the folks at the NRC care if there's ever another nuclear plant that's built. Their priority is no more meltdowns, right? They would rather right. have no nuclear plants at all than risk some sort of accident or disaster. And so that's kind of the risk calculus that 
that leads us to where we are. Is there, has anyone ever proposed doing something where, you know, their the agency's funding or something was tied not just to its performance at preventing meltdowns, but also to the construction of new reactors? I mean, it seems, I, I you know, sounds like I mean, they're- they do, they do get some of their funding from the existing reactors. So you would think that would incentivize them to want more reactors to come online. But apparently, apparently that's, that's not the case. And, you know, I think if we're, this is a podcast about institutions, I think institutional culture really matters. The, some of these agencies were set up in the wake of Three Mile Island or other things where the kind of overriding impulse is we need to avoid a meltdown disaster. And like that's, I mean, that's, I think that's perfectly reasonable, you know, e even though it, it is the case that if you, if you look at the metrics or whatever, very few people die, die or have died from as a result of nuclear power, even these meltdowns, right? Fukushima or yeah. even Chernobyl, really, if you look at like, what's the body count, it's fairly low, but it, you know, the, the scale of the potential disaster is such that, okay, it's, it's reasonable that you want to try and avoid that. The question is, you know, e even if like the easiest way to avoid that is just to do, to, just to have nothing. And is that the right risk benefit balance? I mean, I, I personally don't think so. I think that there's a lot of things that they do where the regulation is not actually adding any safety benefit. It's just increasing the cost and slowing things down. Yeah. yeah. So, so I have a follow-up question about this. Yeah. One of the new kind of progressive mimetic innovations is this term called environmental justice. And the basic idea is that pollution, but also potentially interventions to combat pollution, like hydropower or nuclear power, have disproportionate impacts on minorities. So one talking point you often hear is that nuclear reactors, the, the waste tends to get stored on or near Indian reservations. And so that's disproportionately exposing Native Americans to the bad effects of radiation, never mind the storage tends to be safe, but still it's a worry. You also hear it with, say, there was some hydro dam, like electric line that was going to be built, I think in New York, going to bring power down from Canada to New York, and it was going to go through some historic Native American fishery or so. there was something like that. And right. these groups, including the Sierra Club, were like, we can't allow this. It would be unjust. And I'm wondering with nuclear, I don't know the answer, but but has that worry about the disparate impact exacerbated these kind of regulatory barriers at all? I mean, it seems relatively new, but it wouldn't surprise me if that kind of consideration you know, weighed on, on the decision-making of this agency and on other agencies that kind of are responsible for determining what can and can't be built. Yeah. So is the, you know, how woke is the NRC? I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's clearly, it, I think it's clearly a bigger issue in things like with things like pipelines or other stuff like that right now, because that is what is currently being built. So it, you know, it, it's possible that if you did have a bunch of new nuclear plants that were being built, that issue, there would be an issue there, but it's maybe it's not an issue because you haven't even gotten to that, that stage. Certainly. I mean, there, there's an issue, e even, even things that 
enable the growth and development of green, you know, what are called green sources of energy, you have these problems, right? So the US, in Nevada, there are a couple of proposed lithium mines that are trying to get off the ground, very necessary in order for the production of batteries, for electric vehicles, for electric storage. Uh, and they are running into the same issues of like tri tribal disputes, biodiversity disputes, other things like that. So you know, it's it's kind of an across the board thing. I would be surprised right. if it wasn't also true of, uh, of nuclear. Yeah. So I think one thing, one way to think about this, that's sort of coming out, and I'll talk about this later. My concluding thoughts maybe is is that in part because the nuclear market, sorry, because the energy market is so regulated, specifically the electricity market is so regulated or so, I mean, this is is monopolistic. It's more easily captured by political interests, and it seems like. You know, one thing that 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 can break that hold is is shocks to the system. Can you talk about what the what the political or you know systematic regulatory impacts of the shale revolution were uh, of the shale revolution? Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So yeah, actually, I, if, if you if you tell the listeners just a little bit about fracking, also just to like what the heck happened? Ha ha ha! Right, right, right. Yeah. Well, first they 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 take the deadly chemicals and then they shoot them deep into I the ground that. to cause earthquakes. I love deadly chemicals. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the fracking revolution, very interesting. It probably has done. If you look at U.S. greenhouse gas emissions over the past twenty, thirty years or whatever, the U.S. emissions have gone down a substantial amount. Not you know, mostly not because of any environmental policy, right? Al Gore did not become president. Obama was not able to pass his cap and trade system, right? His regulatory EPA greenhouse gas thing got caught up in the courts or whatever. What happened was you had the fracking revolution, natural gas prices cratered. We started making a lot more electricity from natural gas instead of coal, natural gas has about half the greenhouse gas emissions of coal for the equivalent amount of electricity produced. And so you had like a huge decline in emissions. So that, that's, that, that's been, that was a big environmental benefit. It was a big economic benefit because the cheaper electricity was great for consumers, for, you know, Anyone who's like trying to manufacture things, uh, lower electricity costs can be a, a big win. And then, of course, as you know, globally, you know, the price of oil tracks all sorts of like foreign policy stuff. You know, that it's aside from the U.S., uh, most of the most of the big oil producers are not nice places. And so when the price of oil is really high, they have a lot of money. You know, they do a lot of nasty, you know, maybe some more nasty things when the price of oil goes down, you know, that can have all sorts of foreign policy implications as well. So, I mean, it, it was a big, you know, I don't think if you were to go back to before the fracking revolution, I think the general conventional wisdom was, oh, well, natural gas is expensive. It's always going to be expensive. In fact, there was a period during the Carter administration where the federal government banned the construction of natural gas power plants. So luckily that was that's still in place now. But I do think it's it's kind of like it is an indication of 
this is, I, in my opinion, this is a problem with trying to have like government master plans for what are we going to do with energy is that we don't know what the next energy revolution is going to be, what the next shale re revolution is going to be. And if we don't know that, how are we going to plan, you know, whatever our plan is, is likely to be completely upended. So that, that's just kind of one right. of the things I would learn from that. Yeah. Well, so, so on the subject of, of central planning, I alluded to this earlier, but one of the more fascinating and forgotten chapters of the environmental movement's history is this critique of the of big grid and, and big energy, not just on the sort of, you know, energy security grounds, which I think everyone's familiar with, but also this sort of, there was a political argument that it was enabling this kind of out of touch technocratic control by a sort of self-appointed class of energy elites who could decide who had who who had mastery over the grid and could decide to shut your power off and were sort of alienating the public from energy it was almost this idea that that energy centralization was anti-democratic could you talk a bit about that history and then to what extent if at all do you see those kinds of concerns either playing into public debate now, or, or do you think that they could become kind of live objects of debate sometime not too far in the future? Yeah. So I, so you are right. If you go back to the origins of the environmental movement, it, there was like a big emphasis on kind of, you know, small is beautiful type of stuff, you know, kind of I mean, I think that there even even today, people kind of associate environmentalism with like hippies or whatever, right? And so the I think there's an element of that. Yeah. Part of part of what changed, I think, has to do with one of, you know, one of I'm sure all of our favorite presidents, Richard Nixon, who when he was running for reelection, one of his the person, one of the people he thought was might be his opponent in nineteen seventy-two was a big budding environmentalist guy. And so Nixon in classic Nixon fa fashion was like, okay, I need to do some big environmental thing in order to prove that, you know, take this issue away from him so he can't run against me. So when they set up the EPA and you had some of the, like the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, other things like that, they were set up in a much more of a centralized technocratic way where you basically have experts, you know, scientists or whatever who determine, okay, what are the safe levels of these different emissions? And then you go around to a fairly small number of polluters, factories, other things. You, so you have a small number of polluters that are putting out a bunch of pollution and then you regulate them. And that's kind of the, the model that is kind of taken over. Mm -hmm. and so that's one factor. The other factor that I don't think it's remarked upon enough, the climate change uh, in a certain way, like people now think of it as like the environmental issue and it's kind of eaten the rest of the environmental movements to a large extent, right? It's taken most of the money, oxygen, time, energy, but it is very different from a lot of environment, like the classic environmental issues, a lot of whom, you know, which were like this stream, you know, near my house is like polluted. I don't like that. So we got to clean up the stream or, you know, I like watching birds and the birds are, you know, dying because of, you know, plastics or whatever it is. Right. Yeah. It was a very local. It was the concern was like 
really based in like local issues and and small scale stuff where and it had this kind of like you know decentralized ethos climate change is really the opposite of that you know it's a global problem and everything is about like the you know scientific models and glow you know right. world conferences of people in suits and things like that right so that you know the the old impulses the kind of like decentralized hippie-ish impulses behind the environmental movement haven't gone away i mean to be frank i there you know those impulses they have some positive features but they also like the d we were talking earlier about the degrowth people or whatever i mean that comes out of the same thing you know so there's like a, a dark side as well i would say but for the most part you know that so that flares up every now and again but for the most part i think they've kind of just been like routed and most of the you know now it's all I, I, like you know these days the like big champion who are the big champions of you know the environment it's like hedge funds right blackrock or you know coca you know pepsi cola right occasionally you know honorary nor a Scandinavian teenager, right? But uh, right. for the most part, you know, that's not what it is. And uh, I don't, I don't, I am skeptical that we will see a return to the older ethos, but I could be wrong. So I think we want to, we want to move towards the end of a little bit, but I want to, I want to ask about, I guess, sort of concretes, because um, it does seem to be like, if, 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 if the model I laid out earlier that like the, 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 Mm. politics is important to energy in part because of the sort of power that politics is accepted to exercise over the market. Is there, is there, you know, is, 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 is there some virtue to more competition in the market facilitating depolitization, making it harder for, you know, activists to make policy? If that's the case, then how do you move towards that? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, the classical way of, thinking about this is that if you had more competition, more markets, then people would be focused on delivering value to consumers and they would not have the luxury or ability to engage in like all of this other political stuff. I mean, as I, I, I would say my, my faith in that as I look around at like all the corporations that are sending me emails about, you know, their, their, you know, commitment to to whatever and that's been tested a little bit i don't know what's going on there i know you guys have both uh, written and thought about that a little bit but certainly i think competition generally does have benefits both in terms of like lowering prices to consumers and then also innovation so those are both good things and would it i'm not sure i guess if it doesn't depoliticize energy i don't know that anything is capable of depoliticizing depoliticizing anything these days so you know maybe that's not maybe that's too much to hope for fair enough Aaron what's your what's your takeaway do you feel do you feel like, are, you, are you an environmentalist now or are you like when you move to the when you move to the San Francisco commune will that be your issue it's a long-running joke on the podcast oh god yeah <laughs> I mean you know you know Charles I I I didn't ask to be portrayed this way. Okay. 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 Charles, you know, this is, this is, this is invalidation of my identity. I don't, I don't appreciate it. No, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure my, I'm not sure this has really changed my priors. I guess I'm struck by the irony that in the event of, 
you know, we saw this sort of external shock that really could have forced Europe to just use less energy. And and instead, they're just trying to find ways to use as much or more, right? They're just, there does not seem to be a way to lower, you know, demand for energy. And it does seem to me that that is a important and it's kind of intuitive, but it's also a, I think an underappreciated feature of our energy politics and, you know, something that I would hope that serious environmentalists would take to heart. I'm not sure that they will. Yeah, I think, I think, and I've sort of been mulling this over the course of the conversation, but I am, I, I am interested in, and, you know, I think this is a model that applies to energy, but also other talks that we talk about the extent to which state involvement in a particular domain facilitates capture by activists, activists exercising power over policy. It is remarkable to me that we haven't built, we have not brought a nuclear power plant yeah. in 40 years. That's a great fact. And there's, you know, obviously, obviously there are institutional incentives there, but it's like, yeah, if, 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 if there's one board that gets to make those decisions, it's much easier to to stop energy progress than if there isn't. Um, which well, is this is actually, I say, I, I guess this this is maybe a, a more substantive takeaway. So, so I don't, let me preface this by saying I am not actually arguing for climate dictatorship. <laughs> but it does seem to me that there that because of the dynamic Charles is talking about, in a, in a democracy, especially a democracy with a robust civil society, meaning activist groups uh, in essence, it's going to be harder to do some of the things that probably need to be done to, I, I agree that global warming is not the existential crisis some people make it out to me, but it's clearly a problem. And it would be good if we had, car, you know, zero carbon energy, That more of that, that would be good. And look, I, I also, I like the polar bears, you know, I, I, I if, if, so, so I'm not saying that we should overturn democracy in order to save the polar bears, but if we reduced democracy on the margins and reduced the power of these activist groups to have a voice, and if that incrementally improved the polar bears' odds of survival, eh, I, I, I'm not sure. I might I'm not be sure okay with that. Now that you're describing where where activists, you know, short circuit the ballot box uh, to go directly through regulators is what I would call democracy. Um, no, it's not. It's not. But it's. But it's. Well, it may not be democracy, but it's something that seems to happen in every developed democracy, especially on energy policy. Maybe, I mean, look, if you want to really be, be a bit more edgy here, maybe we could say it's a problem endemic to liberal democracy. And perhaps the liberalism part is 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 really the problem. Listeners, uh, listeners. I'm, I'm, I'm mostly, so I'm mostly spitballing. I'm just, no, but I, I, I do think one <laughs> argument that I've, I've, I've often heard is people will say, well, actually, dictatorships pollute as much or more as democracy. So this is a no-go. And to me, that's actually not a very good counter argument to the, to the deeper sort of ecological authoritarian impulse because of course that the the ecological authoritarian doesn't have to believe that actually existing dictatorships are better than democracies the argument would be given what people clearly want and what they vote for it's unlikely I'm just that saying, 
this is the ARC view, my dude. Right? Like, like, what? like we're gonna install we're gonna install Greta Thunberg as the dictator, and she's going to ensure that the polar bears are safe. No, I, I I'm not. I look again. <laughs> There are all sorts of problems with the climate authoritarian proposals, which is why I don't endorse them. My point is just, it's not actually that hard to construct a case for an opposition between democracy and climate progress. I, and I and I find it and I find it dishonest when people act like solving climate change okay. is going to be this wonderful yeah. victory for democracy. Like, okay. come on, I, I mean, not I really. It. Yeah, no, yeah. that seems true. Yeah. On that note. Why don't we? Uh, why don't we do some recommendations? I guess recommendations are anti-democratic, so that's good. That that's in line with our values. <laughs> do you have a, a recommendation? Yeah, yeah. So I like animals a lot, which is why I do have some sympathy for the the green crunchy activists, as well as for eco authoritarianism, eco terrorism, all of that. And because of these sympathies, I'm going to recommend a piece in the New Atlantis by Katrin Kuiper from a few years back called Do Elephants Have Souls? It's a really, really good piece that will, I think, convince most people that elephants have tremendous moral worth and that poaching and other threats to elephants are serious moral issues. If you're like me, it may also make you very sympathetic to the death penalty for poachers, but that's another story. In any case, it's a great essay, very beautifully written. Highly recommend everyone check it out. We have to do an animal ethics episode. We do, we do, because you, because you, Charles, hate animals, and it's I'm a problem. So long, look, if 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 elephants have like you know free will or whatever, then we need to. They they live in anarchy. We need to enforce some law. The elephants. <laughs> that's my view on the topic. It's a serious issue. I mean, um, I mean, maybe maybe the elephants will eventually enter into a social contract. The real problem. Maybe is- they already have, and we just don't understand it. I should conquer them. My. My organization this week, I'm in the middle of a new book by the George Mason professor Garrett Jones called The Culture Transplant, How Migrants Make the Economies They Move to a Lot Like the Ones They Left. It's a really digestible take on research on immigration, assimilation, and the effects of transferring people from point A to point B on point B. Recommend it. I think it will be out by the time this episode airs, so you buy it on the internet. Josiah, do you have a recommendation for our listeners from your own work, from other people's work, things they should be reading, watching, consuming. Yes. So there is a new book out by Todd Myers called Time to Think Small. And it is about his thesis. He he describes kind of what we were talking about earlier about the decentralized versus centralized nature of the environmental movement. And his thesis is now with like smartphones and all, there's all sorts of new technologies that are going to allow people to take back control of like improving their environmental footprint and whatever. And there's all sorts of cool ways to do that. So it's an interesting, it's a readable book. It's like something that you might imagine like reading on an airplane or something. It's not super technical. So I would recommend that for people. Great. Well, thank you, Josiah, for joining us on Institutionalized. Thank you. Thank you as always to our producers at Nebulous. Listeners, if you have questions, comments, concerns, invitations to be a climate dictator. You can always reach us on Twitter. I'm at Charles F. Lehman. Aaron is at Aaron Sibarium. I think that's about all the time that we have. So until next time, I am Charles Van Lehman. I'm Aaron Sibarium. You've been listening to Institutionalized. We hope you'll join us again soon.